and welcome to episode 13 of Talk on Tech. I'm your host, Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we're here to navigate you through the intricacies of information technology and all things Mount West Community and Technical College related. We don't really have any uh, new dates for you all today. I mean, their summer classes will be starting soon, but the biggest thing that Josh and I have been involved with is packing, packing, <laughs> and more packing. Oh, my gosh. Um, just to kind of give you a little backstory for anyone who doesn't, doesn't know what we're going through right now, uh, in 2003, I believe the West Virginia legislature decided to separate all uh, four-year institutions, so colleges and universities, from any two-year community or technical colleges. So this has been something building up since 2003, but now we officially are no longer a part of Marshall University, and so we're packing up our offices and our, our different computer labs, even even the computer lab we typically record this podcast in, 439 in Corbley Hall, is currently being packed up, and we're going to be moving uh, to our new campus, which will be uh, off the 5th Street Hill exit of I-64. I believe that's maybe exit 8 off of I-64 in, in Huntington. And the, the only problem is this is currently May 7th, and we're not allowed to be in the, to the new building until uh, July 15th. Yep. So we're having <laughs> to get it all packed up, and movers are going to move it, and and uh, hopefully all goes well, and, and we're up there next fall. So it's going to be little bit of a, of a growing pains I'd say so yeah for right now um, I am going to be teaching a summer class but it's going to be off campus and most most of the summer classes are all web-based so yeah, I'm doing a one-on-one online yeah so. so so it's kind of been a little bit of a frustrating uh, two weeks just getting all of grades done and finals done and now all the packing so this episode and next episode uh, might might be a little shorter than usual but forgive us hopefully during the summer we'll uh, we'll have a chance to get back in, in full swing of things and, and get things going. Uh, so today, later on, we're going to be talking uh, to Donna Donovan about uh, the business technologies paralegal studies option, which is an option you'll have if you'd want to possibly go and, and work for, a, uh, for an attorney. Also, I'll be talking to her about different skills an IT consultant would need if they were going to be doing work for an attorney or a paralegal at a particular office. So stay tuned for that interview. I always, 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 always find I find stuff related to the law and attorneys to be interesting. Oh, yeah. I know we've had a lot of interesting um, stories we've talked about previously, mm-hmm. Josh, and the law fascinates me as to how malleable it really is oh, yeah. you know wh- what's written on the books yep. and then what's kind of like assumed or or what does the judge pass yeah, so the interpretation of the of interpretation of, the law. of yeah. the law yeah so um we'll be talking with her a little bit later on about that and and so stay tuned for that but first we do have a couple quick news stories to talk about here and i'll go ahead and lead it off with um with a story about apple and uh before i get into this let me just say up front Patch management is something you should always worry about. Uh, they always stress it in classes. They always stress it in certifications. But you should always make sure that your machine is completely patched and up to date at all times, because anytime an exploit is known about, a hacker is going to know about those exploits, and they'll go, they'll want to go ahead and and exploit your machine. Basically, you need to patch those vulnerabilities so that they can't be exploited. 
And there was a news story that was just released yesterday that mentions that one of Apple's newest updates for its Mac OS X operating system, they're currently on Lion, that's mm-hmm. 10.7 uh, operating system number, they released 10.7.3, which for Windows people, it's basically a service pack. Yeah. Because they go ahead and they'll usually release about nine service packs or ten service packs in the span of the two years that the operating system's usually out and about. And so when they released this 10.7.3 service pack, there was a bit of a snafu that took place because a programmer, apparently by accident, left a debug flag turned on, which what that basically allowed is that allowed a log file to print out in clear text the username of someone logging on as well as their password in clear text. And so because of that, I mean, th- there are there are things like BitLocker that they have on a Mac. Uh, FileVault is their, mm-hmm. their form of encryption that they utilize. But they mentioned that, that if someone had already been using this FileVault technology prior to upgrading the Lion, that they are definitely susceptible to this. Because oh, wow. when, the, when the Lion got upgraded, they didn't automatically change you over from the old version of FileVault to 2.0 at that time. And so if you're on a newer uh, Lion machine, it's typically not an issue. But the thing that they're so scared about this and they want to get it patched up is many times people may say, well, even if a file is unencrypted, maybe I have whole disk encryption turned on. Mm-hmm. The scary thing about this is someone could boot up your Mac uh, in FireWire disk mode which I don't really think they have that in, in, in a Windows world. In a Windows world, you typically hear people say, I'll go in through the BIOS and I'll, I'll boot from a CD-ROM drive yeah. or something yeah. like that. Um, on a Mac, they have this FireWire disk mode, which I've actually used several times. What's cool about that, let's say I have a, a Mac that's sick and I need to fix, I need to get to a hard drive. If I have another, another Macintosh beside of it, I can run a FireWire cable from my healthy Mac to my unhealthy Mac. Uh-huh. And with the healthy Mac still turned on, I can boot up the unhealthy Mac from the hard drive oh, wow. of the healthy machine. <laughs> so it's like get almost like someone jumping your car for you. They turn their car on, the battery's on, and you're able to feed the juice over. So with Fire, FireWire disk mode, you could actually boot up a machine that you can't get in to get to its hard drive yeah. from one that's already running. And they say this is bad because if someone does that, they can get into your hard drive and they can see that clear text file. Uh, and then also with uh, with the newer Macs, they have that uh, Lion recovery partition I talked about previously uh-huh. where I wanted yeah. to make my own Lion backup disk. If they boot up into that mode, they could still be able to get to that file as well. So at this point, I don't see in this particular article yet that, that Apple has uh, gone ahead and fixed that flaw. Then again, we're looking at one day out since it's being reported. But they are saying that this particular 10.7.3 service pack was released on February 1st. So the only bad part about it is we're looking at something that's been out all February, all March, all oh, April, April, and now the start of May. And so even though the flaw wasn't publicly released, it's possible other people knew about it. Oh, yeah. And so you definitely need to make sure you get that patched up as soon as possible. So, you know, Apple... Apple is not flawless. They're not infallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has problems. But I guess this once again reinforces the idea that you need to make absolutely certain you're staying on top of your patches. Because as soon as this patch comes out, 
we need to go ahead and make sure that all the Macs in maybe an enterprise environment had this put on it. Because if not, if I read this, a hacker probably read this, maybe even an employee at your own at your own job might have read this, and anyone really curious about what your password might be will try to take this knowledge and try to find out about it. Because curiosity definitely does kill the cat, and <laughs> curiosity definitely can, uh, can affect people and what they do at yep. a business when they yep. want to know what your password is or how much you make and that type of thing. So, very interesting article. Okay. Well, I got one here. It's a couple of days old, but it's um more legal type type stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, okay. Xbox 360 Windows 7 banned in Germany. Motorola wins patent injunction. Uh, now, if you haven't listened to any of the previous ones, uh, it's been several several weeks ago. I think we had mentioned this slightly about Motorola um, and their injunction. Just There's so much legal suing and stuff going on with these different companies over patent infringement. Oh, yeah. And um, Motorola Mobility um, is the mobile division of Motorola. Um, they just secured an injunction to prohibit the sale of major Microsoft products in Germany, including Windows 7 and Xbox 360. Wow. Now, if you really think about that, that's a huge, 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 huge issue. All the computers that are running Windows 7 and all of the Windows 7 pieces of software themselves and any new Xbox 360s. Are, are supposedly, you know, according to this injunction. Because when I think about Microsoft right now, you mm-hmm. think about they have an operating system yep. that's their flagship. Yep. They, I mean, they have Office, yep. but then they also have hardware-wise, their 360 is a big hardware besides maybe their smartphone. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and so, uh, and it's banning, banning all of those. Yeah. But um, apparently what, what else has happened is this ban is not in effect um, because during a... Um, before this happened, a Motorola was preemptively ordered in April by a U.S. court not to enforce the German ban were it granted. And since it's been granted, it can't be enforced according to this rule, pending a ruling on a related patent dispute in, in Seattle. So because there's another patent dispute that they, they're having right now in Seattle, I'm assuming dealing with Microsoft or something like that, I, I'm not sure, um, a U.S. court system has said if this gets banned in Germany, you can't enforce it until you're done with this case here. Which is kind of weird, but at the same time, um, that does you know, seem kind of, seems kind of odd because it's like, yeah. what does German law have to do with American law? Exactly. And it, so it said um, they won't be able to act on it right now. They're, the, the ban is null. Um, they just can't do anything with it. Um, uh, and then they said Microsoft has moved its European distri- distribution operations from Germany to Netherlands in anticipation of the German ruling. So they had moved out already just in case. Um, but I, the big thing there was I didn't know that the U.S. court had already said, oh, if this happens, you still can't ban it because you've got this other thing going on here. And I, I'd say it's kind of like what we talked about at the beginning was interpretation of certain laws and, and patents mm-hmm. and things. They're probably waiting to see what how it's how it's interpreted or, or you know how they're going to enforce it with the Seattle ruling before right. they say you know this will happen here and I guess that would help in the appeals. So I mean technically, Microsoft has lost that court battle in a sense right um, in, in Germany, but they can't enforce it. Motorola can't enforce that ban until they're finished with the Seattle case. You know, maybe maybe I always look at some of these article titles and, and their summaries in a in an odd way, but didn't you say it was Motorola Mobility? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you said that was their phone line? 
It's yeah, it's the division of their phone. It, mm-hmm. What I find so interesting about it is, you would think that if Motorola's phone division was going to go after something of Microsoft, mm-hmm. you'd expect the Windows Seven smartphone to be on that list. Exactly. Well, N- well, it, it not says the, it's not um, the three hundred and sixty. Well, they they specifically mention the set Windows Seven and the three hundred and sixty, but it says prohibits the sale of major Microsoft products in Germany, including Windows 7 and Xbox 360. I see. So there's a chance that it yeah. is still over there. Um, I don't know how... I know phones work differently mm-hmm. in different parts of the globe, too, so I don't know if that may be something where it's, maybe it's not even available over there yet at this point. That's possible. But they but may just again, not put it on there. And I don't have a Windows 7 smartphone, and yeah. I haven't looked at one a lot, but I do know they, they call it a Windows 7 smartphone, yeah. so it has to have at least maybe an embedded version of Windows Something, 7, yeah. so maybe that also comes into play. I'd say it does, but um, but this is the next step is um, the hearing on the Seattle patent case is May the 7th, so it's today, so we should hear something hopefully by the end of the day about what they're, um, what they're actually going to do about it. So. Okay. Well, kind of staying on the Microsoft track, even on the Xbox 360 track, I have another one here talking about how Microsoft has officially announced a $99 Xbox 360. It's official. Now, that that sounds pretty awesome from the get-go. You're oh, yeah. like, a $100 Xbox 360, now they'll really be able to compete with people. But as they always say, you should read the fine print. This is the fine print. You'll be able to go ahead and buy for $99 an Xbox 360 that is a 4 gig console with Kinect. But, and there's always a but, you'll have to agree to a two year $15 per month Xbox Live Gold contract. So it's almost like you're buying a, a cell phone. Okay. Yeah. On top of that, you'll have to go to an actual Microsoft store to get the offer. I don't know where one of those I is don't at. Know either. No. <laughs> if you decide to terminate your two-year contract, you're supposed to do. There's an early termination fee that could range from $250 all the way down to only $12, shrinking each month based on how how, how far you how far are into you are. it. And it's a promotional offer that Microsoft could cancel at any given time. The interesting thing about this is right now, you can buy a $299 bundle that has the 4 gig version with the connect. With the connect. And someone points out that this bundle, you having to do 99 bucks, having to do 15 bucks per month for 2 years, that ends up being $458. Uh-huh. For the course of the 2 years. That's even before taxes. Compare that to buying the bundle for 299 and then paying 59.99 per year for Xbox Live Gold. Yeah. Which I mean, the interesting thing is they said 15 bucks per month. And so if we go ahead and pull out a calculator and go ahead and say, well, then what's 15 times 12? 15 times 12, that's $180 per year you're paying for Xbox you're paying Live. paying double. And you, you can get it here for only 60 bucks as a discount. So uh, I don't really know if Microsoft's trying to increase their sales. It doesn't seem like they're cutting into their profits at all. Sounds like they're just trying to catch some people off guard. Off guard. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, don't know how else you'd be able to do that, because everybody you can see by itself that the Connect is a hundred dollars, still over a hundred dollars, isn't it? Or did they lower the price to a hundred? I'm not sure. I don't. I have, can't remember I don't have what it is by yet. itself. But then you look, and the, you you've got to understand that there's going to be a catch for an Xbox 360 and a Connect to be a hundred dollars, 
and they're like, oh, okay, we'll just do this. Uh, people are gonna have to be smart. They're, I think they're. Well, the interesting thing is, what if people are like me and they're like, I, I want I'm a loner. I don't want to play online. Mm-hmm. You buy a nine nine dollar one, you're still gonna be paying. You're basically gonna be paying three hundred and sixty dollars over the next two years for a live service you don't want to exactly. use. Exactly. So that's where you're really gonna have to look. And I mean, you know, hopefully they give you that information very clearly but they may not but that's interesting that you have to go to a microsoft store Mm -hmm. to get it so i wonder if that's so they can explain that whole thing to you no i if i had to guess i'd have to think it's the fact that like just like if you want to get a cell phone contract Mm -hmm. you know walmart only has cell phone contracts for certain carriers Mm -hmm. i would think right now for walmart to be able to carry this 99 dollar service that they'd suddenly have to have the xbox 360s be in the wireless department because it's not oh, like you could just well, buy it and, yeah. and, you know, walk out the door. They want to make sure they hook you in. Exactly. Okay. And so well, I mean, that makes sense it, it's too. probably an undue hardship for yeah. normal retailers to take care of, I would say. I'd say so. Yeah, because you'd have to be – it's just another product they'd have to, you know, learn about. Learn and, about. And, and there's another product they'd have to go and have contracts for and exactly. paperwork just into Microsoft. So infrastructure-wise, I would say they're probably going that route. That's interesting. Though. So, Yeah. So now we're going to go ahead and, and get into the interview I did with Donna Donovan about the paralegal studies option. Like I say, please stay tuned to the end of that because I also asked her about some uh, computer and IT-based ramifications that would have to be looked after uh, in a paralegal environment or in an attorney environment. Today I'm joined by Professor Donna Donovan here to talk to us about uh, one of our two-year options we have here at Mount West called the paralegal studies option. Hello, Donna. Hello, Patrick. Tell us a little bit about um, what the paralegal studies option entails for a person who might be interested in in coming into that associate degree. Um, A paralegal is a professional who works with attorneys doing primarily case preparation, investigation, and research. There are a number of people who work in paralegal jobs who are also referred to as legal assistants, mm-hmm. and those terms are pretty much interchangeable in general population. Um, we use the term paralegal studies because most people are more familiar with that term than they are the phrase legal assistant. Uh, paralegals perform a number of different functions, client interviews, case investigations, document preparation, legal research expert witness location, Mm -hmm. lay witness location, preparation for trial, wills, estate probate, preparations of multiple different documents for real estate. There are any number of specialty fields such as social security or administrative agencies that paralegals can be involved in. So the job field is pretty broad. Would, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know about the, the legal field at all, but would someone possibly use this as a stepping stone to say, I want to become a paralegal, and if I really like it, then I want to keep on going on to to maybe go on to law school? Yes. um, We have a number of former students who are now practicing law in both Huntington and Charleston and in surrounding states. At last count, we had 48 attorneys who had completed the paralegal program and then chosen at some point to complete their four-year degree and then go on to law school. Wow. Some people like the paralegal field so well that they don't feel the urge to move on, and some get a little taste of it and decide that they want to go on and try different things that the actual practice of law will allow them to do. Paralegals are not allowed to participate in courtroom trials. 
Um, they are allowed to assist at the trial by providing documents, by locating witnesses, making sure that the trial runs smoothly, primarily an administrative function. Mm-hmm. But they are not allowed to actually participate in trials or in settlement negotiations or in the actual um in parts of a case because that is restricted to the practice of law. So people who like that idea need to go on and complete that degree, and they do. Okay, okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the specific classes that a a student would have to take in the paralegal studies option. Um, In the first semester, and and just to remind everybody, if, if if you're thinking about this particular field and you're wanting to follow along and look at look at what we're talking about on our website, there's the ability for you to go and look at the programs of studies, and we're talking about the paralegal studies option. That's the two-year option we have. We're looking at the first year, first semester, um, and I do definitely notice two, um, two LAS classes of general law and legal assisting. Um, would you talk a little bit about what each of those classes would require a student to do, what they would take out of them, and if any of the other classes there that first semester are of, are of heavy relevance towards the degree, you're more than welcome to talk about those as well. Okay. Our um, entry classes, the ones that people who are interested in the field and coming in would take initially, are um, LAW 101, which the is the Introduction to Law, and it's a very basic course that gives an overview of the court systems, the legal process, how laws are passed, different types of civil suits that people can bring against each other. Um, a little bit of information about family law in that particular instance. Primarily a lot of background, some of which people will hopefully remember from civics mm-hmm. and American history in high school, uh, designed to be a standalone course. Really a good idea for anyone to take if you don't have some idea of how the court system functions. One of the most important things we do in that class is is to actually get people used to what happens during a civil action when one person sues another person and what the actual stages and processes of that are. In LAW 103, which is the intro to paralegal studies, that's really what we start to get into the meat and potatoes of what paralegals actually do on the job. Students in that class learn basic interviewing skills, both for witnesses and for clients. They learn how to develop a case investigation plan They learn how to conduct interviews of clients and witnesses. They learn how to locate and preserve evidence. They learn how to create a client file. One new class that we've added to that first semester that Mm -hmm. is not reflected on this sheet but will be in the fall Mm -hmm. is LAW 104, which is legal ethics. Okay. And our independent accrediting body, the American Bar Association, requires that we teach all of our students what is an appropriate code of conduct for people who work in the legal field. And we do have a one-hour class that is transcripted separately that is designed to teach people specific ethical rules and guidelines so that they don't risk getting themselves or their supervising attorneys in trouble by doing something they shouldn't do. The other general education classes that um, in that first semester, English, Mm-hmm. Introduction to Word Processing, or right. um, IT 101, which is Introduction to Computers, is also acceptable, is supposed to give students a beginning, hands-on way to learn to communicate with clients and to utilize the technology that's so important in this field that we actually use both in the courtroom and in the office. I would have to think, 
if paralegals are going to be doing a lot of research, they need to be very, very good with the written word. So the English is going to be a strong area there. The English and the oral communications as well. And Mm -hmm. if you notice, out of the general studies requirements that this program has, nine hours of those are written communication. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, In addition to six hours of legal research and writing. So Mm -hmm. out of a 60-hour program, 15 hours is focused on effective written communication and then an additional class in interpersonal communications um, to be able to communicate one-on-one with clients and with other people that you might come in contact with. Wow, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the second semester they have on their first year. It uh, looks like they move on to General Law 2. Yes, and that is a substantive law class. Um, it deals with specific topics such as family law, criminal law, wills, estates and probate, property law, contracts, things that are more substantive in nature instead of just an overview of the legal process we're now looking at specific topics and the laws that apply to those and the process for them. I'm unfamiliar with the word substantive. (laughs) Okay Um, for instance if I talk about the court system and we talk about the court system in general we'll Mm -hmm. talk about trial courts and appeals courts and what their functions are and how each state has one. Right. When we get into contracts, I'm going to teach you that there are four specific elements that are required for a valid contract, what each of those elements contains, Mm -hmm. what the court would look at in terms of enforcement of those elements, that a contract can be written, it can be oral, it can be unspoken. What are the rules that apply to contracts? Which contracts have to be in writing which can be oral and still enforceable. Mm -hmm. Those are substantive issues as opposed to broad educational issues. So kind of like a macro versus micro kind of? Yes. Okay. Okay. And so general law two, by what you said, um, it does delve deeper into what was covered in general law one, but it also seems like it hits upon some other areas that were outside the scope. It's it's the second part. It's a step up, if you will, into something that's, Maybe a little more complicated, mm-hmm. a little more in-depth. It's designed to give students an overview of general areas of the law because when they begin then to choose their electives, mm-hmm. they might want to choose their electives based on an area in which they have a significant interest, mm-hmm. like administrative law or family law or business law. Okay. And so general law, too, gives them a, a better feel for those different areas. Okay. And then uh, I also see there's a computer, is it computer applications, applications to, to the law, law office? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so what, what type of possible applications would we be talking about there? Oh, it might be easier to talk about things that weren't applications sure. or faster okay. because there are so many of them. And it starts with very basic things like client databases. Oh, okay. Um, tracking clients, their types of case, where they are in terms of litigation, if they're close to settlement, if they've been settled whether the settlement process has been distributed. Um, We're going to use Excel. Mm -hmm. We're going to use Access to create databases. Those databases are also used for conflicts, checks, Mm -hmm. because you want to make sure that you're not suing somebody you currently represent. That's just not a good idea (laughs) under any circumstances. Uh, And so the conflicts checked is is the first part. We learn about electronic case files. Um, We learn about electronic filing of documents in the federal court through what's called the PACER system. We create um, documents in that class. We learn about electronic billing, about electronic timekeeping. We learn about electronic investigation um, using things like Google Maps, um, Google Earth. 
We learn to do background investigations on people to identify information and occasionally how social me- social media factors into that oh, yeah. um, in certain types of cases. So we do learn to do um, some online investigative types of things. And then we get into very briefly legal, some legal research and writing websites, although we have two classes specifically for that. So we don't get too far into that in the computer applications. Those are, are mostly geared toward um, how the law office functions okay. on a daily basis. Besides those two law classes of 102 and 213, are there any other uh, classes there in the second semester that you'd want to really hit upon? I know you already mentioned oral communication is going to be very, very important, but I didn't know if the uh, the other classes you might want to talk about or would we want to go ahead and move on to the third semester? The other classes fulfill the general education requirements Mm -hmm. and they have been recommended not only by our approval body but Mm -hmm. by our um, legal assisting advisory committee, our paralegal studies group that helps us develop a a course of study that help our students meet certain basic guidelines. They want students to have, for instance, a math, Mm -hmm. um, a science class. They want our students to have a basic um, economics class so they have some understanding of financial management and how it applies, and they want to look at what type of impact the economy has on their practice. Right. You know, for instance, when the economy's bad, bankruptcy practices go up. Right. Um, Divorce practice goes up. Corporation folding goes up. Mm -hmm. And, And so the economy has a direct impact on the type of law that's practiced, so it's important to have some basic grasp of the economic system. Okay. In your uh, in your third semester, I see one of the the additional written communications you yes. mentioned, the English uh, one fifteen, that's in there. But I also see uh, definitely three of your law classes. The first one is um, is it administrative agency? agency advocacy advocacy, and that deals with um, how administrative agencies function, both mm-hmm. at the state and federal level, what paralegals are allowed to and not allowed to do. Um, in those agencies, and that's an important class for us because according to both state and federal law, an agency can allow a non-lawyer to practice in front of that agency if they meet certain requirements, actually accept clients, Mm -hmm. represent those clients in front of the agency, and receive a fee for that. Um, For instance, the Social Security Administration allows that, and there are other agencies that allow non-lawyer representation as well, but you have to be very careful about it because the agency must allow it either by state or federal law. Otherwise, you can't, and so not every agency does. Mm -hmm. But it's important for paralegals to understand how agencies function in the world because of the number of them that you have to deal with because of their regulatory nature. So we're talking, you said earlier that um, paralegals were not allowed to, to be in an actual courtroom, but Correct. when we're talking about going up against um, an internal IRS audit or something like that, that's probably outside the scope, but maybe going up against... Um, Social uh, Security, di- for example. Okay. Or like, like DIFUS, or what do we call that here? Like Social services? Would that even be possible? Social services. Mm-hmm. In some instances, yes. Yeah. Not in okay. all instances. Yeah, but it, it's because you're going to, you're going with that that corporation itself, not the federal government. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay. Well, what about... Um, the legal research and writing. You mentioned you have another. That's, that's the introduction to the process. We mm-hmm. actually have two classes for that. Legal research and writing one focuses on actual research techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are a little bit old school here. Uh, we like to use the books first. Right. 
if you don't know how to use the books, you don't know how to find it on the computer. You have to understand how the books work. Right. Um, the different reporter series, what's a primary source, what's a secondary source, what they can be used for, how you locate things in the index. Um, Google, although I love it, is not the answer to everything. There, there are times that you have to look other places. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a large part of that semester actually in the books, mm-hmm. digging for things and learning how to do what I call old school research. And then we move into the computer land where we use LexisNexis, Westlaw, mm-hmm. um, some of the online computer resources through Cornell Law and some other places to learn to access that information. Well, I, I think it's a good point that you said that if you can't figure out where to find it in the books, you're definitely not going to be able to find it in the more complicated web. That's true. Yeah. And then you also have civil litigation, uh, 235. Civil litigation is what ha- actually happens in the courtroom during a trial. And that course focuses on preparing a case for trial. And what our students typically do is we will use a mock case. And students will be assigned to represent either the plaintiff's side or the defendant's. Mm -hmm. If the class is is big enough, we'll use two different cases. And a student then will prepare that case for trial. Um, And along the way, of course, we're using an excellent civil litigation textbook that defines the terms that are used, defines the different pleadings that are filed in civil litigation and when. It talks about discovery, which is the investigative process of a trial, and then the actual trial itself. And that class culminates with a mock trial where Hmm. students actually, we go to the courtroom and they present their case in front of a a group of volunteer students who serve as the jury. And then um, we've always been very fortunate in that one of our circuit judges or family court judges here in Cabell County has been willing to serve as the judge in that trial and actually make the rulings on evidence so that the students can see what it's like to actually bring that trial forward and present it. Again, even though paralegals are not allowed to try a case mm-hmm. in actual practice, knowing how to do that makes them much more able to assist an attorney who's preparing a case for presentation in court because they understand the process behind what happens. And they can think like what they're going to need. And they can think. They yeah. can begin to project. Mm-hmm. They can begin to anticipate what's going to be needed next. If a trial takes a sudden turn, Mm -hmm. Um, a very unexpected turn they're much more able to cope with that than if they have not actually walked through this process themselves okay and just for anybody out there listening when i when i read civil litigation um am i correct that civil cases mean that that it's one person suing another and then criminal cases means it's either the state or federal suing a particular yes, individual? Yes, that's exactly correct. Civil litigation involves one individual or one entity mm-hmm. against another entity because those persons, for want of a better word, can also be businesses suing each other. Right. Okay. Um, anything that's a, a defined entity in the law is a, a person, for want of a better word. Right. But it's we're not when, talking about government against somebody. No. Yeah. Okay. Oh, let me back that up because, <laughs> yes, you can be sued by the government. Oh, okay. Um, for instance, for um, taxes. The city of Huntington's okay. currently in the process of suing a number of people who have not paid their B&O tax, and those are civil suits. Now, of course, there are some things that cross both lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, you could be charged criminally with failure to pay your federal income tax, mm-hmm. but might also get sued for those taxes 
as well. So there, there are some things that happen in the law that are what we call the double whammy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both criminally an issue and civilly an issue. Right. Well, the 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 one case that I always remember because I was growing up during it was the uh, was the O.J. Simpson trial, mm-hmm. and then I know that that he was criminally uh, he was criminally on trial, and then the family came back and did the civil trial as well. So I kind of I. I kind of thought that was the way mm-hmm. it was kind of mapped out, but I just wanted to check in case people like me were like, what's the difference between civil and criminal? But um, And yeah. one of the things you have to understand about that is there are two different sets of rules. There's a set of rules for cr- civil cases called the rules of civil procedure, a set of rules for criminal cases called the rules of criminal procedure. They are completely different. Oh, well, the rules of evidence are different. The rules of procedure are different. The pleadings are different. Um, I'm just curious. Is one of those difference a jury trial, or could juries be in either? In a criminal case, you will always have a jury trial. Oh, okay. In a civil case, and of course, unless in a criminal case you plead guilty. Right. In a civil case, you have the option to have a jury trial or to have what's called a bench trial, which means you have only the judge who's making the decision on your case. Okay. So they would kind of be like small claims court or, or people's court? No, you court can do that with any trial. Oh, okay. In circuit court, you always have the option to ask for a bench trial, although mm-hmm. generally people don't do that, especially in cases where they're seeking a monetary award. Mm-hmm. Um, because the truth is that in West Virginia, juries are much more award-friendly than simply the judge I see. would be. So yeah. it's, sometimes that becomes a strategy. Mm, okay. I also see you have an elective here that's a, that's a paralegal elective. Um, I think you mentioned just a couple of different areas, but could you hit upon some of the extra classes that may be outside of that? Like I think you said family law and, and different areas that you may be able to get into. We have a number of electives that we rotate in and out on a fairly regular basis. Um, Family law, uh, business organizations, which is primarily corporate law, for people who are interested in that. Um, Criminal litigation, which is always a very, very popular course. We have an interviewing and investigations course. Uh, We have a criminal procedures course. Uh, We have a number of different things that are um, available to students who might want to specialize in a particular area. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And we offer those electives on a rotating basis, so we won't have the same ones every semester. Right. But in the course of four semesters, they will all be available once. Okay. So if, if they find, uh, I think like you were talking about after general law two, if mm-hmm. they find what they really like, they're probably going to be able to get it in semester three or semester four. Yes. If not, they may be able to try to pick it up um, the following year just to really be able to get the one they want. Okay. And in the fourth semester... Uh, we, of course, had the tech report writing class, so they that's their third um, general uh, English, written English class. But then there's also um, a real estate law class there. Is that FN, is that finance? I don't know what FN um, is. It's actually, it's a real estate law class, but it's listed as a finance course. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple years ago, the finance department mm-hmm. offered real estate law and principles and practices of real estate. And if you took both of those courses, you were prepared then to sit for the real, realtor's exam in West Virginia to get your real estate license. Oh. Our students take real estate law because it's an important part of, the, of 
what we do overall to prepare our students. Students need to have some idea of what constitutes real property, how it's exchanged, what the requirements are for a valid deed, what the financing requirements are, so that they have some level of knowledge on how to do a title search, Mm -hmm. on how to make sure that property is clear. There are a number of um, students who practice real estate law as paralegals and actually perform title searches and work as independent paralegals. And that's a very, very up-and-coming field. So in in that case, um, with the real estate law, is that governmental-based? I mean, earlier you mentioned some of the advocacy groups. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to go ahead and and, uh, practice that law without having your your attorney's license? You can't actually practice real estate law. Okay. Um, because it requires being able then to certify deeds and to do some of the other things that constitute the practice of law. Mm-hmm. However, what a number of attorneys do is hire independent paralegals who do title searches. I see. And that's the preparation work, which identifies whether or not a piece of property might have a tax lien against it, mm-hmm. might not have been cleared through probate through someone's estate, um, might have been seized by the IRS or by the state for back taxes, may have been sold as delinquent property, all of which would certainly put a little crimp in your plan to purchase that particular piece of real estate. And so there are a number of paralegals um, who travel in a multi-county district, Mm -hmm. and they do nothing but certify titles. Okay. All right, and then the attorney prepares the actual documents for the transfer of the real estate. Okay. Well, I, I also figured, too, when it comes to real estate law, you also had to think about not the buying, but eventual, eventually with a, with a death, possibly the selling or, or uh, cutting up of an estate. Yes, so you or have the to, transfer of that property. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely going to come into play there as well. And then you also have a 212 class, a legal research and writing, too. That's um, part two of mm-hmm. legal research and writing. And in part one, of course, we focus primarily on research skills. Mm-hmm. Part two reemphasizes those skills but moves on into an upper level of legal research and writing um, where students begin drafting um, case arguments, where they begin drafting briefs, where they begin drafting a memoranda of law in support of a particular legal position citing both the law and the cases that support that particular argument. And so you're moving to a very advanced level of writing at this point, which is why we require so much written communication in this program, because Mm -hmm. the ability to write clearly and coherently in an organized manner to pull your thoughts together, um, to sum everything up, Mm -hmm. and to still stay within the guidelines of the rules of procedure is is a very, very important skill for our students. And, and we think it's well worth it to spend this two semesters to have our students leave with that skill. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary component of their <clears throat> portfolio for employment is the legal memoranda that they write in this class. Okay. And then in, in a... In a real uh, court environment, for example, would that be something that they would actually have to do the research for ahead of time uh, for the for the attorney they work for so that they could then use that in, in court to try to cite why they're uh, expecting this case to, to apply? I guess what's that through called um, the type precedent. of law? The, yeah, the precedent law. Mm-hmm. Paralegals do a lot of research both before trial and sometimes actually during trial. One of the things that you have to anticipate is that the opposing side will bring up an argument that you may or may not be familiar with Mm -hmm. um, or one in which you have not done enough 
research right. or something that you may have never heard of. And so paralegals are expected to be able to research quickly mm-hmm. and accurately, um, sometimes almost right now in this in this moment. Generally, their research is done prior to that time, and right. it's very common for an attorney to say to a paralegal, here is the nature of the case. Um, this is the research that needs to be done, and I'd like you to draft an argument outline and tell me why you think the facts support our client or don't support our client. Because one of the things that we try to teach our students is anytime there's a legal situation, there's never just one side. Mm-hmm. There's multiple sides. And every side will have a valid point, and you have to anticipate all of those points and bring them into play. There's, there's never, hardly ever, rarely one viewpoint for anything. And one of the things that we sometimes struggle with teaching our students is they, they say, well, I'm good at arguing, so I'm going to be good in this. That's not really a key skill. It's the ability to analyze to think, to recognize that every case can have valid points, more than one, and that they all have merit. Mm -hmm. And the question is, which point has the most merit? Right. It's the weight of the merit, not what it is. Right. And, And so sometimes it's a different mindset that we have to get through students in that first semester that the fact that you might be great at arguing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parents or the guy at the grocery store might not necessarily make you a great paralegal. It's the ability to do analysis mm-hmm. and to weigh those points. It becomes more of a debate, it almost. Be- it's, yes, it becomes more of a debate. So tell me about your all's internship. What, what are students required to do for their internship? The internship is 144 hours of actual work experience in an approved placement setting. And we have students who work for private law firms, Um, for the public defender's office, for the prosecuting attorney's office, for legal aid offices. Um, They have worked in the victim's advocate office. They've worked for the secretary of state, um, for the attorney general's office. There are any number of reasonable placements that are out there. One of the things we try to do is place a student in their area of interest. If a student, for instance, is particularly interested in family law, we will try to place them with an attorney who practices family law. If they're interested in bankruptcy, we'll try to place them with an attorney who practices bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Although we do encourage them in their internship to keep an open mind and to try different experiences. And so we have students who sometimes even split their internships and they will do half of their hours in in one area and half in another. Um, We had a student this semester who did part of her hours in the prosecuting attorney's office and the other half in the public defender's office because she wanted to see both sides mm-hmm. of of the criminal process and got a very different viewpoint from each side than she originally thought she was, but it was a great experience. And so we do try to help our students find those placements that are geared toward their interests, but we encourage them to keep an open mind mm-hmm. um, and consider something they might not have thought of. Okay. Well, um, Thanks for talking about your, your degree. I have, I have one last question that kind of maybe will tie in. If people aren't interested necessarily in looking into this field, they may like to know some uh, requirements that, that, are, that are mindful in the technology field for anybody hmm, in the legal offices. I guess what I'm trying to say is anybody listening to this that, that is coming from this from an IT standpoint, 
what are some of the technology ramifications that are having to be done in a legal office? I'm sure e-discovery maybe or chain of custody. There are two or three things that come to mind just right off the top of my head. Okay. One of them is the actual database client file management preservation Mm -hmm. with regard to confidentiality, which must be absolute. Okay. If if an attorney's office is moving toward electronic files, um, which again are really critical for backup, Mm -hmm. then you need to make sure that those files are protected from inappropriate access by other parties. The second thing that comes to mind is the concept of of discovery, which is the investigative part of the trial. And one of the biggest fields right now is e-discovery. What's on your computer? What did you have out there on social media that we might be able to use both for or against you? What's on your smartphone? Um, What can we have access to legally? Can we have your text messages? Can we have pictures or drawings or comments that you sent to other people? What's actually available and usable in litigation? Mm-hmm. And I think that opens up a whole, a whole barrel of, of technology issues and concerns, um, as well as privacy concerns. Lawyers are going to be looking for simulation software, mm-hmm. um, for ethics training, for in firm training for trial preparation one of the games and i I use that term because that's really what it is Mm -hmm. that we like to use with our students is called objection and the judge will come up on the screen and and present a scenario to the student and the student has 30 seconds to decide whether to object or not and then the judge will say you're wrong overruled or you're right because and these types of simulation training are excellent for our students to get a feel for what the actual courtroom is like without having the risk of making an error in the courtroom. Right. Um, there's a big market now for continuing education training for attorneys in the software field, mm-hmm. for development of software programs that allow them to upgrade their skills and um, to use these types of simulation games. And, of course, we're moving rapidly to the electronic courtroom. I went to a seminar about four months ago on an electronic courtroom that's controlled completely by iPad. Wow. And an attorney went into the courtroom and did an entire trial with nothing but an iPad. No paper, no pencils, no legal pads, no books, nothing that you typically see on TV or in the movies or even locally. Everything was run, all the exhibits, all the documents, everything was on the attorney's iPad and went directly into the electronic courtroom system there. And so the development of programs or applications for those types of needs is going to be huge. Okay. Well, I knew um, when you mentioned the document retention or at least uh, the archiving of it, um, we have, I have a class that I teach that's on storage technology. And um, before I taught that class, I'd never heard of this type of technology called content address storage, which its whole, its whole idea is let us make sure that we retain the integrity of this document you have for five years. And the idea was you're probably not going to have to access it that much, so we're going to put it on older, slower storage. But we're going to make absolutely sure that it doesn't, doesn't have anything 
go wrong with its integrity. And then I was taking a, um, a computer security class, and they started talking about e-discovery. And in that class, they, they brought up all these different cases oh, where, yes. where people came back and said, well, hypothetically, uh, HP, someone's suing you, so HP, we're going to ask you to give us your last three years of emails. And HP was like, we don't have the last three years of emails to be able to bring up to this case. And the government would come back and, and, and lay these large fines on them for the fact that all this litigation was taking place. And they were just conveniently getting rid of the records, kind of like a, an Anderson mm-hmm. Consulting back <laughs> in, the, in the Enron days. So it does seem like in, in the technology side, as things, more, as things move more and more towards computers... Not only do we have to do regular document retention, now we need to make sure we start re- uh, retaining all of um, the electronic, the email, all those things. And so we do talk about that type of stuff in, in our exchange class and our storage class. So, Well, that raises another issue for us with technology. Mm-hmm. Because communications between an attorney and their client are privileged under law. Mm-hmm. And so in order to maintain that privilege, we have to make sure that every email... Every document, every fax contains a disclaimer that says this is work product, it's protected, it's not intended for any person other than the person to Mm -hmm. whom it's addressed. If you receive an error, this is the process that you should use. And so that work product is actually part of the case file Mm -hmm. in addition to being perhaps a traditional email. Right. And that's going to require it to be stored two places, in in the client's electronic file. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the email storage that a firm would have. Hmm. And so you're looking at perhaps a a different problem than, say, a traditional business firm would have with the confidentiality factors. Well, I do know um, when I teach the exchange course, I always thought people just type those by hand, those boilerplate disclaimers. And and then I learned in the exchange course when I started teaching that, that that I have the ability as an administrator to put that on all of my email that flows yes. out automatically. It just, it just comes on there. But also in the exchange course, you learned about how you could do uh, two types of, of archiving of your messages. You could do what's called journaling, or you could do what's called archiving. Archiving forwards a copy of the message on to somebody, to, a, to another empty mailbox, basically. But they had always said in there that you needed to journal instead because in a, in a court of law, you need an exact copy of that email with all the email mail headers up there. Yes. If you forward it, that's that's kind of tampering with the information. Things might have changed. So, yeah, there's a lot of ramifications, especially in the email side. So, well, thank you so much for talking to us today about the paralegal studies option. And uh, if anyone has any questions about it, you're more than welcome to, uh, to send us an email at talkontech at gmail.com or send us a tweet at TalkOnTechMCTC, and I can definitely make sure uh, that Donna gets that information. Thank you very much, Donna. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Donna Donovan. Um, I really think that there is a market out there for IT consultants to be able to tote the fact that they have experience working for paralegals or working for attorneys. Uh, just like there are, there are ones who can tote they're certified to be able to lock down an accountant's machine, I think there could definitely be a very nice niche market uh, for you to be able to say, I do work almost exclusively 
uh, for law firms to make sure that their information is protected since you do have such a big deal with attorney-client privilege and those type of things. So I hope you all enjoyed uh, the episode and the stories we talked about today. As always, we want to remind you, if you would like to contact us, we have a Twitter account, which is TalkOnTechMCTC, or you're also more than welcome to email us from Gmail. Uh, We have an account that's TalkOnTech at gmail.com. Feel free to send us back any feedback you have. If you have any news stories you would like us to talk about or anything you think slipped through the cracks and what we might want to talk about, we welcome uh, any comments you have. Also, feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes. We are Talk on Tech with Josh and Patrick. And feel free there as well to also leave any comments or feedbacks that you have. So that'll do it for this week. I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a great week. Thank you.